from Salesforce Studios, this is Blazing Trails. Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. A global pandemic does not discriminate. So why is it disproportionately affecting some groups more than others? In today's roundtable style episode, we're joined by CEO of Reform Alliance and CNN contributor Van Jones, family physician and epidemiologist Dr. Cameron Jones, and senior editor at Fortune Ellen McGirt to discuss the impact of COVID-19 on African-American and minority communities. Our guests discuss how this inequality isn't the result of a biased disease, it's the result of systematic inequalities in our economic, education, and healthcare systems. They offer insights into how business leaders can work to level the playing field by prioritizing diversity as they reimagine the workplace in a COVID world. And now I'll hand it over to our host, Ebony Beckwith. As I've watched this crisis unfold, I've been filled with so many emotions and just as many questions like, why does this continue to happen to us? How, how do we make it stop? And really, what can I do to make real change? And, you know, in order to get to these answers, we have to talk about the hard stuff and we really have to speak the truth, which is exactly what we're going to do today. So when we thought about bringing you this curated hour. What I really wanted to do was bring you the voices of the experts that I trust the most in the midst of this chaos and this crisis. So I'm very excited to be joined by the very powerful voices of Dr. Kamara Jones, Ellen McGirt, and Van Jones. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for being here. And really thank you for being my voices of truth amidst all of this. Now, I know you all have a lot to say, so we're gonna dive right in and get started. Dr. Jones, I wanna, I really wanna start with you. You know, for many years, you have been helping this nation really name racism, and you've been doing it by telling powerful stories, allegories, and parables. And I was wondering if there's a short one that you'd be able to share with us today. Oh, thank you, Ebony. I would love to, um, because I think it's important for all of us to name racism and to recognize that it's not only foundational in our nation's history, but it's alive and well, and it's revealed in all of its starkness by this COVID-19 pandemic, but it's also revealed in our infant mortality, maternal mortality, and the like. So the story that I want to share is one that I share if I only have just a few minutes to help people understand that racism exists and how it operates. Even people whose whole life experience has been one that has convinced them that this is a land of equal opportunity. This story, which I call Dual Reality, a restaurant saga, is actually based on a real life experience that I had when I was a first year medical student. So let me tell you what I lived through. My you know, I was very studious, of course, as a first year medical student. So one Saturday, I was home studying and some friends came over and they joined me and we were studying long and hard and it got late. We got hungry and I had no food in the apartment, which was typical. So my friends understood and they were like, OK, Kamara, no problem. Let's go into town and find something to eat. So we go into town and we find a restaurant and we walk in and we sit down and the menus are presented and we order our food and the food is served. and there we are. So you're like, that's supposed to tell me something about racism? Well, no, hold on, hold on. As I sat there eating with my friends, I looked across the room and I noticed a sign that was a startling revelation to me about racism. So now I've intrigued you and you're like, Dr. Jones, what did the sign say? 
Well, what did the sign say? The sign said, open. So now I know I've lost many of you. So let me recap. Here we are sitting in a restaurant eating. I look across the room. I see a sign that says open. And if I hadn't thought anything more about it, I would have assumed that other hungry people could walk in, sit down, order their food and eat. But because I knew something about the two-sided nature of those signs, I recognize that now, because of the hour, the restaurant was indeed closed, and that other hungry people, just a few feet away from me, but on the other side of the sign, would not be able to come in, sit down, order their food, and eat. And that is when I understood how racism structures open-closed signs in our society, that racism structures, if you will, a dual reality. And for those who are inside the restaurant, sitting at the table of opportunity eating, and they look up and they see a sign that says open, they don't even recognize that there's a two-sided sign going on because it's difficult for any of us to recognize a system of inequity that privileges us. So, for example, it's difficult for men to recognize male privilege and sexism. It's difficult for white Americans to recognize white privilege and racism. It's actually difficult for all Americans to recognize our American privilege in the global context. But those on the outside, those who, who are looking at close, they are very well aware that there's a two-sided sign going on because it proclaims close to them, but they can look through the window and see people inside eating. So back inside the restaurant to those who ask, is there really a two-sided sign? Does racism really exist? I say, I know it's hard for you to know when you only see open. In fact, that's part of your privilege not to have to know. But once you do know, you can choose to act. So it's not a scary thing to name racism. It's actually an empowering thing. It doesn't even compel you to act, but it does equip you to act so that if you care about those on the other side of the sign, which is an if, but if you do, you could even talk to the restaurant owner who is, after all, inside with you. And you could say, restaurant owner, there are hungry people outside. Why don't you open the door again? Let them come in. You will make more money. And oh, the conversations we could have. Or maybe what you do is pass food through the window or try to tear down that sign or break through that door. But at least what you won't be doing is sitting back saying, huh, why do I those people don't just come on in and sit down and eat? Because you'll understand something about the two-sided nature of that sign. So I share this story anytime I'm trying to help people understand that racism is structuring two-sided or multi-sided signs in our society. And even though you may have been born inside the restaurant, you know, there are ways for you to know about the two-sided nature of that sign. I've actually started three-hour conversations with community groups when I just asked the question, how could people born inside the restaurant know something about the two-sided nature of that sign? I will just uh, go back to you, Ebony, from this, but I would love at some later point to define racism. I don't know if you want me to just give a one sentence definition of racism now, since I've used the word so many times, would that be appropriate? Briefly, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so here's my one sentence, and then we can all go deep on this. I define racism as a system of structuring opportunity and of assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race, that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities, unfairly advantages other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. Thank you, Dr. Jones. I want to pick up on that disadvantage. And Van, I'm going to throw it over to you. As we see death toll tolls rising in communities of color, why are African-Americans and other communities of color so in particular 
particularly vulnerable to COVID-19. We have a pandemic that is jumping on top of multiple existing epidemics, um, including an epidemic of poverty, bad housing and bad jobs, as well as epidemics of hypertension, uh, um, obesity, diabetes and others. And um, I think what this virus is trying to teach us is something about wellness and oneness. That's what I think this virus is here to teach us. Wellness and oneness. Uh, we, we don't just have sick people, we have sick systems that have allowed um, certain kinds of disadvantage, as the doctor said, to accumulate uh, you know, on the other side of that door. But we didn't care so much because of this idea, well, that, those, those people are over there. What's happened is, as these sick systems have allowed the sicknesses to accumulate in some communities and not others, the virus comes and it has no respect for any of these divisions. It does not respect race. It does not respect income. It does not respect uh, who you voted for. It just jumps from body to body to body to body. And it turns out that some of the people that maybe the mainstream just saw as maybe uh, apps with feet under them, you know, just all I gotta do is just punch my phone and service is gonna show up, products gonna, I don't have to worry about, did that worker uh, have enough money to live in good housing? Could that worker who's in that warehouse see a doctor if he or she got sick? I don't have to worry about that. I'm just gonna punch my apps and go on. Well, it turns out that uh, it matters a great deal whether or not uh, the people who are, are, are on the other side of that door are well in a pandemic. And so what I would say is simply this, um, we have some sick systems that need to be healed as well as, as well as sick people. And there's a great opportunity here because once you realize that we are all in this together, you have to have a movement that can jump from heart to heart to heart to heart just as aggressively and just as exponentially as this virus goes from body to body to body. And you start running into barriers. Well, why is it hard uh, for us to even understand of what's going on on the other side of the door that the doctor was describing. Uh, we haven't seen it as urgent. It's been optional. Mm -hmm. It's been something you might want to do. Now one is something we got to do because this virus is, is insisting upon it. So let me just say one, say one more thing about this. When you look at where African-Americans work uh, and live, it shouldn't surprise you at all. The, those so-called essential jobs are disproportionately for African-Americans and people of color. Look who's bringing you those packages. Almost always people of color. When you go in those grocery stores, look who's standing around exposed. Almost always people of color, disproportionately. So when we're, we're, we have an epidemic of, of bad jobs, risky jobs, jobs where we don't get paid very much and where we're exposed now to a lot of peril, you can't be surprised that our numbers are high. So when you start saying, well, look, we want a minimum wage to go up, that doesn't sound too radical now. You couldn't pay anybody listening to this $15 an hour to stand in those grocery stores and be exposed to this virus. So when they say they want to raise a living wage, suddenly that makes a lot more sense. When communities say, you know, we want health care for everybody. Doesn't sound crazy now. Everybody who's sick should see a doctor. Nobody thinks that's crazy anymore. So some of the wisdom that was coming up out of these communities of pain about work, about health, about help, which seems so radical and seems so weird, now suddenly makes common sense. Okay. So there's an opportunity to learn from the people on the other side of that door, the wisdom that's been there, the requests that have been there. Um, and, and, uh, and I hope this conversation will lead toward that.
Thanks, Van. And, you know, we're going to talk about those deep-seated inequalities in a second. But, Ellen, I want to go back to when this first started. And when everything started to first heat up, there were a lot of rumors and conspiracy theories going around that African-Americans were and minorities were, were quote-unquote, safe from COVID-19. Do you think that misinformation led us to where we are today? Oh, it is such an important question for a variety of reasons. And I do want to talk about all of that. I would like to be considered an honorary Jones, though, today. I'm the only <laughs> one without the last name. And I'm feeling such a spirit of wellness and oneness right now. So please, I am Ellen McGirt-Jones today for this brief <laughs> moment. But I, I've been thinking about this rumors and misinformation piece because it's important to me for a bunch of levels. First of all, um, my answer is no, but with lots and lots and lots of caveats. Rumors and misinformation are terrible for absolutely everybody. And it's interrupted political discourse here and around the world. It's disrupted elections, real uprisings in the street. And an extreme example, genocide, talking about the Rohingya people in Myanmar um, with uh, misinformation fueled extensively by Facebook and WhatsApp. And of course, even the parents of children who were murdered in Sandy Hook on a daily basis, they are harassed by people who believe that that was not true. So misinformation is a problem for absolutely everybody. Um, and I want to do acknowledge the deaths of many of the pastors in some of the African-American churches, particularly the Church of God in Christ, which is the biggest African-American Pentecostal um, uh, uh, congregations. It is some of whom were not socially distancing, but some of whom were. It's just a, a tragedy that I think we're still going to be, we're going to be parsing for a very long time. But Ebony, here's my long answer. If we were to truly indulge the idea of misinformation and rumors or even weaponized information as the primary cause of the disparate impacts of this disease on communities of color, and I'm also speaking about um, black communities, Latinx communities and indigenous communities, um, we are in tremendous risk to miss the opportunity that my, my brother and sister Jones also, um, also highlighted, which is to breeze by the deep-seated systemic racism that actually has gotten us to this moment right now. And the same is true with, well, we have pre-existing conditions. You know, once we stop there, then we are not examining the racist ideas that go along with that, that question our character, our work ethic, our willingness, our intelligence, our inability not to, to become, um, to, to, to not ward off diseases. Um, it's this myth, these racist myths about black characters and, and black bodies. We're dying because we've been shut out of a healthcare system that welcomes and understands us and meets our needs for generations. We are dying because we've been locked out of credit markets that have given us access to clean and affordable homes, businesses. Look what's happening with PPP. It's, it's like the New Deal all over again. Um, we're dying because we get disproportionate punishment in schools and are shunted out at a very early age. You know, we're dying because we're overrepresented in the criminal justice system, harassed daily on the streets. We are dying because coded words, I'm going to talk corporate now, like Yale and golf have become longstanding proxies for talent. It's where we have underrepresentation all throughout the workforce. Um, so ultimately, I want to address all misinformation. I want to get good, actual information about health wellness and oneness and what would take to heal society right now to everybody. But we're actually dying because we haven't taken the time to examine and dismantle the racist ideas that are built into every support beam in every system we have ever had. Dr. Jones, I feel like this is a perfect segue over to you. Would you like to add anything? 
Oh my God. Yes. Preach, preach. <laughs> we are preaching today. So yes. And the big problem in our country is even though we are describing how racism has been foundational in our nation's history and continues to have very profound impacts on the health and well-being of the nation. This nation, for the most part, is in staunch denial of the continued existence of racism. And so I've been thinking about why that is. And I want to just give you the first three out of seven ideas I have about um, things in our society, kind of the cultural norms of our society that allow people to drift back into what I describe as the somnolence, the slumber of racism denial. And I think our job, I agree with you, Van, our job right now is to not allow that to happen. I agree with you, Ellen. We, we have to stay on this. We cannot allow people to, to deny racism. But here are the three things that we'll have to address in order to get there. The first is that in this country, we are so narrowly focused on the individual that systems and structures seem to be invisible or irrelevant. The second is that we as a nation are ahistorical. We act as if the present were disconnected from the past and as if the current distribution of advantage and disadvantage that we've been describing is just a happenstance. And also when you're ahistorical, you might be born, things are this way, you might think that they've always been that way and always have to be that way. So being ahistorical also limits our ideas about how systems and structures can change. The third of these, what I call, you know, values-based barriers to achieving health equity is our endorsement of the myth of meritocracy. The story that goes something like this, if you work hard, you will make it. Okay, so now hear me on this. I give you that most people who have made it have worked hard, although not everybody who has made it has worked hard. And we have very prominent examples of that right now in our country. But just as I acknowledge that most people who have made it have worked hard, there are many, many, many other people working just as hard or harder who will never make it because of an uneven playing field, which has been structured and is, which is being perpetuated and supported by racism, sexism, heterosexism, all of these systems of structured inequity. And to the extent that we deny racism, which is like most people these days, we are endorsing the myth of meritocracy. We're saying those people were lazy or stupid or superstitious or didn't try all of those things that Ellen, that you were talking against, that we shouldn't go into the, the myth area too much. So what I want to say is that we must name racism. It's good to talk about race. It's good to talk about disparities, implicit bias. There's lots of good things to talk about. But if we talk about all those things and never say the word racism, the ism piece is the important piece. That's the system piece. Then we, if we never say racism in the context of widespread denial, we are complicit with that denial. Van, I want you to pick up on that system piece, especially because in a recent post for CNN, you mentioned that in order for us to move forward, not only do the systems need to change, but we need to change. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, uh, look, 90% of this problem is a structural and systemic problem. In other words, the biggest, um, you know, what a pandemic does, or what a plague does, is it actually reveals the fault lines that were already there and it makes them worse but it tends to crack the society along the existing fault lines. And, um, and so the biggest correlations here have to do with um, wealth, uh, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and other uh, uh, disfavored minorities ain't got as much money. 
And that turns out to be fatal in a pandemic because you wind up living in close quarters. Uh, you know, I often joke, I say, you know, wealthy people have been socially isolating. Uh, they, they have, they have uh, gated communities. Uh, they got big mansions with one person in them. They're already, they kind of socially, that's part of being wealthy. You get to socially isolate. When you're not wealthy, you can't socially isolate. You tend to live in smaller homes with more intergenerational families. Often, if you get really poor, housing projects, homeless shelters, women's shelters, jails, prisons, detention centers, Native American reservations, hard to socially isolate when you're poor. And so the virus moves much more quickly. Again, working in jobs where you don't have good health care. Um, even when you have good health care, sometimes you go to the doctor, the doctor treats you differently than someone who looks different. That's been shown in study after study, a great, great uh, heartbreak within the medical community. And so most of this, 90% of it is structural and systemic, and we can never let go of that. And then there's, there's probably a 5 or 10% variable, though, where uh, we have to know the government's not going to come and save us necessarily, and there can be better choices. We do need to, you know, I have high blood pressure. Uh, I've just been popping pills for my high blood pressure for years. I'm now changing my diet because I actually want to get off of the pharmaceuticals and just be a healthier person. I think we can raise that banner as well, but it cannot be done at the expense of saying we have these bigger structural issues as well. So I'm a both and on let's everybody be healthier. Frankly, Americans on a whole are much less healthy on the whole than our rich country counterparts. Uh, I mean, I knew when I saw the numbers coming out of China that it was only old people in China dying and mainly old people in Italy dying. I said, that's not going to be true in America because the average, you know, stereotypically the average person in China who's 35 years old, probably pretty healthy. The average person in Italy, 35 years old with that Mediterranean diet, probably pretty healthy. You get to the United States, the average 35-year-old person is not as healthy. So I knew our numbers were going to be worse in terms of younger and younger people. And then in the African-American community, because of all the things we've discussed, you have people dying in their 50s, in their 40s, in their 30s, and in their 20s because of these, this, this, this matrix of epidemics now being pushed down by, on by this pandemic. So it's a, I'm a both and, but it's really big on the structure, but also there are changes anybody in America can be making to be healthy. So let's go back to those deep-seated inequalities in this country, and in some ways how this pandemic has revived segregation in terms of access to certain goods and services. Dr. Jones, I would love for you to, to start the conversation with there. Ooh, so... Um, the biggest segregation there has been in terms of the pandemic is segregation of access to tests, right? And to safe places to isolate. So I don't know if that's the vein that you want to go to, but in the, in the actual um, response to the pandemic, we have been guiding our responses as if, as Van said, that if you have a positive test, if you are lucky enough to be connected to a doctor who can then prescribe a test for you, which is still needed in some places, or, you know, then, and you're lucky enough for them to give you a test, but they say, oh, you're not that sick, that you can go and isolate without infecting all the rest of your family, right? Um, so I guess what's happening now is that some people are able to safely shelter in place, and some people are even able to safely isolate in place without infecting other people. And then others of us are not. We're the essential workforce being forced with these meatpacking plants, the poultry plants in, in Virginia, you know, the, 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 
pig plants and I don't eat meat, so I don't know what you call them. But, you know, these these all of these meatpacking plants where the president is going to have an executive order forcing them to stay open and forcing people to go to work. It's um, it's a terrible thing. It's as if we are really seen to be disposable people in the service of profit and in the service apparently of eating meat, <laughs> you know? So that's all I wanna say about that right now. Okay, Van, Ellen, anything to add before I move us on? I wanna talk about reopening the country. Uh, Ellen, I saw your hand, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, if, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I think corporate America can do. Do you wanna do that in the yeah, ahead, reopening please. the company? Yeah, it's this, this idea that people we used to ignore suddenly became essential workers and now are hostages you know, and into this big system. It's a pretty intense thing. And I've been noodling on what I thought, speaking corporate again, corporate America can and should be doing about it. And I have a couple of things that I think might be useful fodder for future conversations. Um, one is use their people analytics skills and actually survey the people that work with them, employees, customers, vendors, community members, to figure out exactly what's happening right now and how it's affected their lives, because we're just not getting good data that we can trust other places. And that means really granular things. Who feels safer at work than at home? Who has inadequate access to tech and Wi-Fi? Who lives in a food insecure neighborhood? Whose mother died alone? You know, who was worried that their kid's entire education has just been derailed and who was not wrong? You know, we're struggling to get all of this data together. And if we want to wrap our arms around the inequities and take action on them, corporate America has a huge role to play if and only if they collect and share this data. It's not something that people typically do very much. We, we can't even get demographic a diversity demographic from, from more than 16% of the Fortune 500. But sharing this data and letting scientists look at, look at it and letting social, um, uh, social organizations look at it, let policymakers, let voters look at this information, we can really put a shape to this. Which leads me to number two, which I, Ebony, I know you know this is my passion, now is the time to make diversity and inclusion efforts central to this work. Not only did we lose tremendous momentum in 2008 recession, I mean, our talent pipelines today reflect that all of those initiatives were, went by the wayside back then. Now is not the time to defang your office of equality if you were lucky enough and smart enough to put one together. If you were smart enough to put together a chief diversity office, now is the time to get them in the bubble next to the CEO, next to the board, next to the decision makers. Because the workplace we're about to walk into that we're about to ramp up looks is going to look very, very, very different. People are going to come in in different conditions with different ideas about how they're going to be safe at work, whether they're actual office workers, or if they're first-line essential workers who are now decimated. This is an extinction-level event for those, for those communities, for every type of worker that, that my brother Van and my sister Kamara just named. Um, and we need to think about how we're going to bring those, those uh, communities um, back online safely, what a creative benefit package looks like, Anybody who thinks this working at home experiment has been good for people with children, particularly working women, is nuts. The, the backsliding on, on, um, on, on women's um, achievement at work has been just bonkers. But it preached. Anybody, your DNI professionals, no, Van, you, you are right there with me, my brother, and I can't wait to buy your lifestyle book because I can tell there's one coming. You need these diversity and inclusion professionals next to the CEO. You need your offices of equality right there because we cannot rebuild this work quickly without that. And I would say, I'm throwing this out, Ebony, I haven't really thought this through. 
um, as a as an actual call to action. But if we're not taking seriously voting rights for everybody and taking a stand, okay. we're we're never going to see the society that we want. I tell you, eight years ago, six years ago, if anybody had said there would be an amicus brief or a, or a collective letter respecting gender rights and public bathrooms, I would have laughed. Now I think, why can't we get together some sort of movement to make sure that low work, low wage workers and hourly workers can get to the can get to the polls safely? Why aren't we weighing in and analyzing these big issues? Because I promise you, from a corporate point of view. The Jackie Robinson, who's now waiting alone in the deep end of the high potential pool, his, her, their family is going to risk their lives and their livelihood to get to the polls in November. And that's just nuts. And we have a role to play in making sure that doesn't happen. Van and uh, Dr. Jones, I would love for you to weigh in. Clearly, things have to change. And I want to pick up on that thread that Alan had. What role do businesses play in this next normal? I would like to start there, if I may, Van. Okay, as long as I get as long as I get time. Go ahead. You go. You go. You go back. No, no, go ahead. I'm just joking. Go ahead. Okay. So I think that a lot of what you were saying, Ellen, presupposed that we kept some of the structures the same. And I just want to put out there just a, a challenge. Um, do we just do we need the diversity people moving next to the CEO or do we need cooperatives? You know, do we need um, a whole new thing? Do we need universal basic income, for example? Are the things, you know, when we reimagine, is it going to be that our reimagining is a reframing? So now we're not talking about the glass half empty. We're going to talk about the glass half full. Or is the reimagining going to fill up the glass? I mean, that's that's how I'm thinking about it. So I think that we might even and I'm not corporate. So you so obviously I'm I'm talking as somebody who's not corporate. But I think that we need even deeper structural changes that value all of us and give us the, all of us the opportunity yep. to thrive. I think that what's happening is inside the restaurant, the people who are inside are actually putting up bigger barriers. And I don't think that they're going to be opening the door to people who are on the close side of the sign. Van? Um, well, let me just say a couple of things. Um, uh, I think being data-driven here really backs up and supports what everyone is saying. Um, Let's just be data driven. Uh, if you if you're in a pandemic and you want to defeat it, you have to focus on where the hot spots are. Um, and the hot spots are the, the United States is now the epicenter of the epidemic. Communities of color have now become the epicenter of the epicenter. And then inside of those communities of color, you have you know prisons and other things that are the epicenters of the epicenter. So just 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 if you're data driven, you're going to say we've got to focus here. We've got to focus attention here. We've got to focus tests here. We've got to focus uh, protective gear here. We've got to listen to the voices from the front line. What do they need? As Ellen was saying, that, that, that may be very, very different. You have a benefit if you are uh, you know, a corporate leader, if you have a diverse workforce, if you have people who, who are tasked with this, you're going to be smarter than your competitors by listening to the voices of people whose family members are on the front line experiencing stuff that's not making the news, that's not making the headlines. And so there is a, a, a wealth of wisdom in your midst that I think you would be very, very wise to, to, to pay close attention to. Um, I also want to say that, um, you know, uh, uh, as you begin to listen to the voices of women in particular, there, there's a fantasy going on now. That, hey, shoot, I used to have to travel. Now I can just stay at home. This is great. That might be working out for me. 
it's not working out for my ex-wife and still best friend two blocks from here who's got the boys right now. Uh, so th- th- let's not jump to, if the next normal is up to us to define and to describe. And as we build and create this next normal, uh, whether they're very creative ideas like are coming from, from uh, Dr. Jones or um, very pragmatic ideas that are coming from uh, Ellen Jones, uh, uh, Ellen McGregor Jones, um, uh, this is the time for wisdom, for creativity, for innovation, for thinking things through. And I'm so yes. glad that Salesforce is doing this. You know, I've known Mark Benioff for a very long time. In fact, I, I was one of the first board members on his first philanthropic effort. Uh, and you know, I'm not surprised that Salesforce is willing to have a conversation like this because Mark has never been afraid of tough issues or tough conversations. And so it's very, very, I think it's very natural that this is going on. Uh, but different people hear these, this conversation different ways. If you're hearing us saying only, you should be kinder to others. If you're saying only, you should be concerned about people you hadn't been concerned about before. You're only hearing half of what we're saying. Mm-hmm. The other half of what we're saying is you need to be smarter you need to take advantage of wisdom, insight, genius, perspective that might be left on the other side of that door that your competitor might go and get and beat your butt in the next normal. So this is about heart plus smart. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's what we're trying to bring to this conversation. Yes. You know, and I just want to I want to end on uh, with all of you just really weighing in on the fact that, you know, I think it's important for people to know that they are not helpless and they are not hopeless in this situation. So, and even really the smallest change can make a really big impact. So tell us what are some things you're doing to make change? I'll I'll go first this time. Okay, you go first. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm a part of the Reform Alliance. Uh, We are working to help the people who are are behind bars. Don't think about this, but you have 2.4 million people who are in prison right now. They can't socially isolate and the virus moves five to 15 times faster through a prison population than a normal population, which means not only are those people at risk, the guards have to come in and out. Food services has to come in and out. And what's happening now, you can do a heat map of Ohio and you can tell where the, the, the prisons are just because that's where the viruses are and you're hurting a lot of people. So you can't defeat a plague on the outside of a prison if you don't defeat it on the inside of a prison. Reformalliance.com working very hard to get masks in, working with people like Madonna and all kinds of people to get masks in, to get some people safely out you can support the groups that are working with vulnerable populations, uh, women's shelters, um, homeless shelters, prisons, and, and a little bit goes a long way just doing that. Thank you. Ellen? So I am working as hard as I can to amplify the stories that I collect and I hear. Man, it's a perfect example of story. Kamara's work is an example of amazing stories and insights. And turning my little piece of fortune race ahead and just all of the relationships I have within the media into an opportunity to amplify this work and to understand it better and to be the heart and the smart and to call for more inclusive leadership. So I am very lucky to have a job in journalism. This has been an extinction level event for local journalism in ways I've never seen. And we're also seeing, um, uh, spikes and in infections in places where they don't have good information and they don't have it from, from dedicated reporters who understand how communities work. So I'm looking for ways to amplify those voices as well. So I'm feeling very grateful uh, to have this platform, to have these friends, to have a temporary proud last name, and, and mostly that there are, un, there are an enormous number of people who are working very hard to understand 
this issue, how it's just how it's impacting people and communities and our future, and tell those stories as best I can. Thanks, Ellen. And, and Dr. Jones, we'll wrap it up with you. So I am continuing in my decades-old uh, work of equipping people with tools for a national campaign against racism with my stories so that people can talk about racism with the question, how is racism operating here? Looking at the elements of decision-making so we can identify the levers on which we need to intervene and with collectives so that we can organize and strategize to act. And in particular, I'm very proud of the Campaign Against Racism, a network of 23 chapters in nine countries that are still um, each one working on racism in some area. So they're in you know, Haiti, the US, UK, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, on and on. And we are meeting even now to understand not just our local stories about the pandemic, but to develop a global story. Thank you. Well, this was amazing. Dr. Jones, Van Jones, Ellen McGirt Jones. <laughs> Thank you all so much for lending your powerful voices to this important discussion. It was a pleasure to have you here today. And thank you. Thank you so much. That was Van Jones, Dr. Kamara Jones, and Ellen McGirt with host Ebony Beckwith reminding us how this pandemic has exposed institutionalized inequalities in our society and how now is the time to make diversity inclusion a top priority for organizations, companies, and individuals. For more insights into this topic and others, head over to salesforce.com blog to help guide you through today's changing economic and social environments. Salesforce is here to help. I'm Michael Revo. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for an interview with Dr. Jane Goodall about cross-species contamination, what we can learn from the pandemic about our environment, and how there is hope for the future. All that and more on the next episode of Blazing Trails. Blazing Trails is a production of Salesforce, a customer relationship management solution committed to helping you deliver the personalized experiences customers want. So they'll keep coming back again and again. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more.